0: And prior to going to SUT, I went up to my cadre and I was like, hey, I would like to switch. Instead of being an 18 Bravo, I'd like to become an 18 Delta. He asked me, why do you want to be an 18 Delta? I said, because I know what it's like to be a patient. And I this is exactly what I said. On my future best friend's worst day, I want to be the one that they call to help them.
1: Welcome to War Dogs, the military medicine podcast This show brings you a first-hand, behind-the-scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. On this episode, we're privileged to welcome retired Army Staff Sergeant Adam Bardwell to War Docs. Adam served as a Special Forces Senior Medical Sergeant with the 3rd Special Forces Group Airborne at Fort Bragg. He is currently the Security Operations Supervisor at Global Rescue. You can learn more about his bio on WardocsPodcast.com. In this episode, you'll hear about the training that Special Forces Medics receive and how this is put to the test in real-world situations such as deployments to the CENTCOM AOR as well as Africa. He talks about preparing for prolonged field care scenarios and other interesting training opportunities for special forces medics. He also describes some challenges associated with transitioning from working with elite teams in the military to the civilian sector. I'm your host, Dr. Doug Soderdal, retired Army urologist, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Wayne Causey, active duty vascular surgeon. Today, we're privileged to welcome retired Army Staff Sergeant Adam Bardwell to Wardox. Adam, thanks for joining us today.
0: I appreciate you guys having me. It's seriously an honor to be on here. You guys have had some absolute giants. So thank you for having me, guys.
2: Adam, your story of interest in the medical field goes way back to the age of 10. Tell us about what spurred your interest in medicine.
0: So my my interest in medicine was planted at a young age some un- unfortunate events happened but my interest in becoming a soldier began a lot sooner probably around 6 it just felt like it was my destiny like i wanted to do it my entire life you can ask my friends i was always the dude who wanted to play in the neighborhood i'm like hey let's let's play soldier let's play war you know i'd always get mad at i'm like hey you guys aren't playing hard enough what's going on so i was always showed interest i always felt like it was my destiny and and it was a path that i wanted to pursue but at the age of ten, I was diagnosed with early stage Hodgkin's lymphoma. I was really lucky to have caught it early, and it was really something that I dealt with adversity at a very young age. I found myself in and out of hospitals uh, getting chemotherapy and in surgeries and things of that nature. It was a cervical lymph node about the size of a golf ball i was I was an athlete, so I was playing football at a young age, and I'd put my football helmet on and I'd be like, "Hey, hey Dad, like something's going on with my helmet It doesn't sit right. there's this thing behind my ear. it doesn't hurt, but it's getting in the way so Ultimately, I went to the doctor and, and we ended up having to get a surgical biopsy, and it came out to be Hodgkin's lymphoma. Caught it early, and I was getting treated at a Mass General hospital under a doctor named Dr. Allison Friedman, who's probably one of the leading pediatric oncologists in the nation. So, unfortunately, I was in and out of there. I spent a lot of time and I kind of got very comfortable in the hospital. Uh, I started to kind of learn the lingo. I mean, it was a very scary time for me because my parents were scared, my siblings were scared. Obviously, I was scared and it really just showed kind of the value of medicine and when it's done right and when you have good bedside manner and you care about your patients, how far that can go. So
1: you mentioned that you wanted from age six to be in the army and you went ahead and joined the army. When you initially joined, did you join into the medical field to become a medic or how did that work?
0: Not at all, actually. I, I, I tried to become a Marine first. That was my ultimate goal. I wanted to be a Marine wanted to be an 0321 recon Marine. And due to those medical issues, the Marine Corps didn't want me and the Navy didn't want me. Uh, so the army was actually my third choice. And so I joke around and I, I tell my Marine Corps buddies and my Navy buddies, I'm like, it's your loss, man. You guys could add me. So I wound up joining the army. I was actually a 19 Delta, which is a Cav Scout, very heavily reconnaissance focused. It was 2010 when I joined. So I was 19 years old. I was a young buck. But I was super motivated. I was very happy to be there. I had a lot of medical issues to overcome, and the waiver process was very strenuous. And and really, all I wanted to do was be in the military. That's all I wanted to do. So it was a fight. And my journey to become a Green Beret really unknowingly started then because of that. Um, And each obstacle I had to tackle throughout the waiver process and any kind of roadblocks that popped up, I had to put out. And ultimately, I I shipped for basic in in August of 2010. Uh, I was a nineteen Delta Cav Scout, um, and I was stationed at Fort Carson, Colorado, uh, and I was on Bradley Fighting Vehicles, which is like a, a tank, so to speak. It has like a twenty five millimeter chain gun on it, and it's it's a reconnaissance platform. So I didn't have very much dismount experience or any medical experience. and it was it was really a good thing for me, though, because I, I learned a lot at kind of about the world and about leading soldiers. I, I really had like a good opportunity to kind of develop as a soldier.
1: When you joined the Army as a 19 Delta, that was nothing to do with the medical field. What kind of medical training were you getting as a non-medic that would help you on the battlefield take care of your buddy if they got hurt?
0: Sure. Yeah, it was very basic kind of combat lifesaver stuff. I did always latch on to my medics just because it was it was something that like subconsciously I, I suppose I was interested in. I kind of could see the value of it then. So we were just getting your basic TCCC stuff, your tourniquets, chest seals. I did, they didn't even teach needle Ds at the time. And it was like pressure dressings and just your very, very basic stuff.
2: So 19 Delta Cav Scout. What prompted your interest to become Special Forces? I mean, how did you go through that process and decide what you wanted to do?
0: First of all, it kind of goes back to my failures, right? So when I, was, when I was a Cav Scout, I went to Ranger School. As a brand new E4, coming out of a mechanized unit, I had no idea what I was doing. I went out to a very doctrinal, patrol-based type environment where, that I'd never, never seen or done before. I was used to being on Bradley's. They were mechanized. So I go out to Ranger School in 2012. I'm an E4. I show up there. I have no clue what I'm doing. I'm there for 60 days. I fail, right? I had some great guys in my squad. There were some SF dudes. There were some rangers. And that was my first experience in two special operations. I was ill-equipped. I shouldn't have been there. Like bottom line. There were no enlisted Ranger tab guys coming from my unit. Like it was it was a rarity if you were coming from a mechanized unit to go and be successful at Ranger School. The one guy who was successful at Ranger School came back, went to selection like right away. That was the standard. There just weren't Ranger tab enlisted guys in, in my unit. So I go to Ranger School, I fail, and really I learn. I'm able, like, although I failed, I was able to really expose myself to like elite people. And I just remember being, I want to be like those guys. And like a lot of them were option 40, young Ranger Regiment kids, but I was jealous of them. I was like, what, what did you guys, how, did, what are you doing? They're like, hey, I'm a, oh, I'm in Ranger Regiment. I'm an 11 Bravo and I'm here because my squad leader told me if I fail, I go back to the regular army. I'm like, well, okay, well, what do you guys do? And, and there, the tier one direct action unit and supporting of other tier one units, et cetera. So linking in with those guys, I was able to pick their brain. And then there was a Green Beret in my squad as well. And I, I picked his brain and I felt like I aligned more with the Green Beret mission. So even though I failed, I took something away from that school.
2: So when you went back to your unit, what happened? You'd failed Ranger school. What what was sort of the, the next step?
0: The next step, I mean, obviously I, I kind of held my head in shame coming back as a Ranger school failure. And I'm not, proud of it but it's it's how you respond to that failure is what's going to define you as a person shortly thereafter i think i came back in about november and and right around spring time frame i was like actively trying to go to selection basically because of the gb that was in my squad there so i came back and i was like i, I took my medicine i made my e5 pretty quick and then i i went to selection shortly thereafter and it was history from that then on
1: so how did you go about making the decision to be 18 Delta, Special Forces Medical Sergeant? And what did you do after that initial training to enhance your combat medical skills?
0: When I was selected in 2014, I was selected as an 18 Bravo. So I wasn't even supposed to be an 18 Delta. So I showed up to the Q course under the pretense that I was supposed to be an 18 Bravo. And when I got there, there's hold times and things like that, waiting to pick up classes for certain certain parts of the Q course. And uh, there was a, there was a group of guys there talking uh, and we're waiting, we're waiting to pick up first phase. It's a phase called IUW, which is where you regate and you do all your, your land navigation and uh, things of that nature over again. So it's basically like selection 2.0, so to speak. So waiting to pick up on that class, I hear, I hear this guy named Elliot Robbins, and and rest in peace, Elliot. He he actually died in Afghanistan due to a non-combat injury. And I never actually had the chance to tell him, but his mentorship changed the trajectory of my life and the fellas he was talking about who were, who were his buddies and his fellow Deltas as well, I could overhear them talking. And they were talking about, they were trying to diagnose a sports injury. I think it was like an iliotibial band syndrome or something along those lines. And because of my past history and being in and out of hospitals, I knew how doctors talked. And so I was like, man, these guys sound really, really good. They sound like, they sound like doctors. Like, what, I want to be like them. And so I kind of latched onto them and I would pick their brain about Sockham and, and I learned about Sockham and the advanced skills that they were working on. And I felt like it just was more of a fit for me. So I, I ended up completing IUW. I go to SUT. And prior to going to SUT, I went up to my cadre and I was like, hey, I would like to switch. Instead of being an 18 Bravo, I'd like to become an 18 Delta. He asked me, why do you want to be an 18 Delta? I said, because I know what it's like to be a patient. And I this is exactly what I said. On my future best friend's worst day, I want to be the one that they call to help them. And he was like, that's the best answer I ever heard. Roger that. And so he put my paperwork in and I ended up getting approved. So I came back from SUT and SEER. I had orders to go to Sockham. And it's funny because the cadre that approved it, he ended up being in my company years down the road and we ended up deployed together. And it just shows how small the community is. And his name's Roger. I think he's a golden knight now, but he—I don't think he even knows that. Thank you for that, because oftentimes when you're trying to request changes and things like that in the queue, like people, they won't even entertain it. But he—he he took me serious and he—he he supported me in what I wanted to do, and it ultimately it worked out.
2: So We have a lot of listeners that are medical. Obviously, they're also tri-service, so Air Force and Navy. They may not understand exactly what. You've been describing where you had started off as an 18 Bravo and then became an 18 Delta. Can you just very quickly summarize for us what's the makeup of a special forces team?
0: Sure. So your entry-level MOS is you have 18 Bravo, which is a weapons sergeant. They're the tactician of the team. They're the ones who are responsible for developing your training protocols on the range and your team SOPs for small unit tactics and things of that nature. They're well-versed in foreign weapons as well as American weapons, mortar systems. And I've even, our Bravo's even trained up, up all the way to artillery pieces. So it's very weapons focused. And then you have your 18 Charlies, which are 18 Charlies, your engineers. So your special forces engineer, sergeant, they're responsible for demolition as well as building. So they build and they blow things up. And they're basically in the rear. They're in charge of all the all the books, all the team equipment, all the ordering and things of that nature. And then you have your 18 Echoes, which is your communication sergeants so they're in charge of all things radios all things computers all things secure networks and things of that nature and then you have obviously your 18 deltas which are your your medics and those are your entry-level MOSs so
1: so tell us more about the the actual SOCOM course so special operation combat medic course what kind of things do you learn how long does it take and do people fail out of that course
0: Yes, people, people definitely fail out of that course. And Sockham for me personally was one of the hardest things that I've ever been through. I lived in that schoolhouse. It's a nine months course. If you go straight through, very seldom do people go straight through. You're going to fail something. I failed AMP, which is anatomy and physiology. And you learn everything from band-aids to chest tubes and, and everything in between. Even if you come in off the streets, no medical experience, they're going to put out an insane product, a very capable product of people who are Ready to go do their jobs, and they really prepare guys and gals to show up to their team or whatever unit and and be ready to make an immediate impact. And that's one of the things that when people are going into a special operations career or ending up on an ODA, you'll hear that one of the only MOS that shows up ready to do their actual job, right? Like to do their their doctrinal job is an eighteen Delta. Day one, an eighteen Delta is going to show up to a team and be able to do their job, whereas an eighteen Bravo is going to have to learn certain things, certain advanced CQB tactics, or an 18 Echo is going to have to learn how to set up certain pieces of equipment that they don't learn in the Q course. But an 18 Delta shows up and he just needs to learn other people's jobs and refine the 18 Delta's responsibilities.
1: So let me me expand on that a little bit. Tell us some of the complex situations that an 18 Delta would find themselves in. and, And why is it you think the way that you do?
0: To put it in the context of what 18 deltas are preparing to do, the complexity of the mission sets that are happening within the special operations community, whether it be MARSOC, SEAL, or SF Ranger, CA, whoever whoever has SOCOM grads, it can be. It's like rolling up on a car wreck. Like they're preparing for rolling up on a car wreck, high speed car wreck. Picture family of five slams into a post in the middle of a highway in a country that's three times the size of Texas with little to no infrastructure, and they're the only person, they're the highest trained medical person in a 500-mile radius. And that's a huge responsibility. So when you have to look at the people that you work with, their wives, their children, their parents, whoever, and know that you are the first person that they're going to, to call when they're hit, or if they're they're hurt or injured, that's what a that's what an eighteen delta is preparing for, or that's what a special operations combat medic's preparing for is to be that that first life saving capability in a person's worst moment in the in the worst conditions in the worst environments in the most dangerous places in the world.
2: So, did you ever find that there was a, a pathway where if you had that situation, even though there's no physical resource that was close to you that there were outlets of ways in which you could at least get advice on what you should do medically because you have let's say you had in your example you had five patients and they're going to be triaged to different categories were you able to ask for assistance for instance from other people
0: that's something that is the special operations community and the special operations medical community specifically is really at the forefront of is developing that capability through telemedicine is is something that is is huge, uh, especially in the prolonged field care setting. The ability to be able to call a doctor and have an, an 18 Delta B walk through a certain surgical procedure is something that we trained and that 18 delta is do trained to implement but they have to have the tools in order to be able to set it up if you find yourself sitting on a patient for days on end which in many cases Africa is a very prime example a lot of people have ended up having to sit on patients for four or five days you have to know how to use the resources at your disposal and telemedicine is one of them so having a doctor walk people walk walk them through amputations debridements and and things of that nature
1: tell us a little bit about the first time that you found yourself in a similar situation where something bad happened medically, people required care, and you were it. And evacuation was not simple. Communication was not easy. It's austere. What were you thinking at that time? And and did you feel prepared?
0: I was in Syria one time. It was a three-truck convoy. We were just heading to, I don't know, we were heading to like another base where one of our sister teams was at. They had some Marines with them and the Marines were pulling the outer guard for the base and everything like that. So it was two trucks of ODA members and then one truck of Marines. And the Marines had their, their battalion sergeant major and their battalion commander in the same truck. And they were driving over a bridge. It's only three of us. I'm the only medic. Um, they have these terrible nods. And, and in the distance, there are these oil refinery things burning. So it's washing out their nods. And they come over this bridge and the SDF have set up a serpentine. But we can see it because we have good equipment. The Marines, on the other hand, are driving with like the one toilet paper tube, and they come over and they hit this this serpentine pile of it's like a dirt pile, so you have to weave to sl- to slow down. But they didn't see that, so they're going probably 25 miles an hour over this bridge. They end up hitting this serpentine this mound, and all we can see is the truck. It looks like it falls off the bridge, and it's got a, an exterior gunner. He's hanging out the hatch. It's got a driver TC. The battalion CSM and the battalion commander in it. So that leaves only two trucks. They fall into this like probably it looked like they fell off the bridge, but it was actually like a wadi on the other side that was probably twenty foot deep. It was a Mat V that fell in there and it just gobbled it up. Like you couldn't even see the top of the Mat V, and it and it rolled over to the side. So immediately, here we go. We have a mass call on our hands. So we come over the other side of the bridge. I jump out. My commander. In these moments, this is where kind of you have to wrangle people as the Delta to make sure people are doing their responsibilities, right? So, like my commander, he wants to help out, so he puts his microphone down or his his radio down, and he jumps out. I'm like, get get your ass back in that seat. You make the call up to hire. Let's get people out. And he did. Of course, he knew he knew what he was doing. I, it just he he wanted to like get out and help right away because he was a Marine private back in the day. So he went Marine private when he saw the Marines go off. Long story short. I jump out, climb down the body, and I'm thinking we're gonna have a dead gunner because it's over on at the top. Luckily, due to the fact that the gunner had his harness on, it pulled him in. And when I came around the top, the hatch had been closed, so I thought his, he was decapitated. And the, the 50 cal had been like mashed into the ground and bent. And so I was prepared for the worst. I, I come around, I, t- I, I look around, I don't see any gunner who was just previously ha- hanging out of the hatch, and I look, and I'm like. Gunner, you there, buddy? And he's like, I'm here, Sergeant. And I'm like, are you kidding me? You're, you're alive right now? And he's like, yes, yeah, Sergeant, my knee hurts. <laughs> okay. So I'm trying to get an up of everybody in the truck and everyone's kind of panicking because they'd just been in this pretty violent rollover. I was able to pull them out. It was five guys. I conducted hasty neuros on them. We had some musculoskeletal injuries, but they were minimal. We got really, really lucky. But the biggest complexity there was, one, the vehicle recovery, and two, the response time from a second medic. And so from a resource standpoint, had that gone worse, I only had so much medical equipment. And our dust-off was coming from an hour and a half away. So it wasn't like it would have been quick. So that's that's why training and training these types of scenarios is vitally important because if you neglect rollovers, I had my, my team warrant would be like, you'd be like, bro, you haven't been deployed if, if you hadn't been in a rollover. And it's true because I dealt with two of them on my time in Syria. But that's one time that really sticks out to me to where I felt like I almost bit off more than I can chew. And I damn sure would have bit off more than I could chew if they had actually had some, some critical injuries. But luckily, due to the fact that they were all like buttoned up because of who they had in their truck, it saved their life. That is another note to where if you're listening to this podcast, you want to be cool. You want to not wear your seatbelts. It's like one of those things that can truly save your life. I saw it happen and it makes your medic's life easier. So just just do it. We had another instance where we we dealt with another rollover. Is actually the day after Christmas 2019, where we we're driving down south and of our, our, our AOR. And we were all kind of pissed off. It was day after Christmas and we were trying to get the mission done quick. I think it was just a regular presence patrol and we're driving down a road in 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 syria there's all these little oil refineries and the road was coated in oil and our mat v spun and ended up rolling over the door had swung open and our jtac was sitting in the back left seat the door swings open and he's got antennas hanging off his back because he's talking to the birds the entire time And our Charlie, who's sitting in the middle seat, grabs him and holds him in from because falling out as this thing's as this thing's spinning and rolling over. So this thing spins over, runs on its side. It's a mess. The crow shears off. I'm in the truck behind. My senior medic Clay's in the back in the back truck with the team sergeant. So we all see this go down. It looks. I mean, it's terrible. I, I. It was. It was absolutely terrible. So we run over there. We're thinking everyone's dead because of the speed we're going our jtac it's on its side so we have one side of the doors are up so my my seniors is he's like a hoss he's one of those strong dudes you like back squats all the time and he just he lifts up the door i hop in i i, I go down the hatch and our jtac's kit is smashed between the mat door and the ground he missed decapitation by literal inches and if it wasn't for our charlie sitting in the middle to grab him he would have been dead i i don't know how it, he didn't die so, this one was a bit more serious than the Marine one. I ended up having to get in there, cut his kid off. Our, we had our Turp in there, our, our detachment commander, we had our EOD guy, we had our Charlie who was sitting and gunning in the, in the seat. We, obviously, we had our JTAC. Our biggest concern, and everyone was like AO times three. Neurologically, everyone seemed to be intact. We had a lot of guys complaining about head injuries but we weren't very far from the FST. We were maybe 30 minutes away. So if we were to self-recover, we ended up calling for QRF. They came out and picked our guys up. But it was one of those times where we felt we had other assets, other people out doing missions, and we only had one dust-off asset at the time, and the weather was really shaky. So if we were going to call for medevac, I felt like we had to be sure that we were going to use that asset and take it away from other people in the country. These guys were awake and talking to us. There were injuries that came out later, fractured neck, fractured back, and things like that. But it ends up becoming, you have to make the call on the, on the battlefield based on how they're presenting to you. So in this case, everyone we felt like was stable enough to where we didn't have to call for a dust-off asset. We wanted to bring them back to the FF, FST, have them evaluated by our docs, which is about a 30-minute drive. So we call for QRF, we get them evacuated, our JTAC was probably the most critical critically injured guy. He had a fractured back and our TURP had a fractured neck. But that all came out in the wash after. However, like I said, they were neurologically intact.
2: Take us through that. So you here you are. You're, you're probably one of the most highly trained military medical point of injury providers that exists at this point. Tell us how you were trained to make the decision as far as someone stable, or not stable. And then also tell us what equipment you made sure that you had with you when you're going down a convoy where you may encounter injuries and you're the only person to provide care.
0: Looking back, it's one of those things that you'll play over in your head. And, and I know my team sergeant had a hard time with it and was, was worried that we didn't make the right call. And I actually talked to Pete McGuire about it after the fact, who you've had on this podcast. And when I mean, he's in agreement, we did the right thing. My team sergeant's now in agreement that we did the right thing. But mace cards are super important. You can really track kind of neurological deficits as well. And that that was the big thing we were looking for. And they were walking. They were ambulatory. And, we, and my Charlie was well within his character. The first thing he asked for, he's like, man, I need a cigarette. So I knew he was good, although he was pretty injured. He had some some blood coming from his head. But in combat, those things that you would normally right away, evac- like, hey, get on a spine board for, you don't have that luxury especially if your vehicles can't facilitate that type of transport, right? Like a MAP-V is poorly set up for that. So you can carry a spine board, yes, but if you can't actually put the patient in a safe way and transport them in a safe way, it's useless. So you have to, you have to carry the equipment that's going to fit your vehicle and the loadouts you have because there's nothing you can do about it to change it. And what we were, we were relying on just our best judgment and, and really just going off of vitals, neurological assessments, pain assessments, and, and anything that stuck out in terms of any numbness or tingling. And we, we had to make that call based on what we had and, and the assets that we had, because that's your decision. Your treatment is not always going to be the gold standard. It's going to be based off the situation and the context of where it's hurt and what you have at your disposal. And in this case, we had, I think, one dust off asset for the entire country. So we can't burn that up over people who are talking to us. Because what happens if our sister team steps on an IED and now you got some dude who's urgent surgical? Like the guy with a broken back's going to live, but the guy who's urgent surgical isn't. And those are things you have to think about. It's like chess. You have to make sure you're not hogging the assets in the country. And, and that's ultimately, we made the right call. But we ended up getting them back to the FST and weather was black. So even if we wanted a bird, we wouldn't have got it. So we had to sit on them for about 36 to 48 hours for the guys who were getting evac to reveal.
2: Yeah, and that's an important concept now, especially that the casualties aren't occurring as much as that the evacuation times, the assets are spread out farther. And so you actually have fewer assets for medevac and they're also spread out a larger geographical distance. So if you do go to medevac somebody, there's less and it's more travel time. So you actually have a fairly significant decision making that you need to make in order to evacuate people. What about your kit bag? So here you are, you're on a convoy, special forces medic. And tell tell us what you make sure that you have with you.
0: I always make sure we we always carry fresh whole blood. That's the gold standard now. We that is that is one of the newest, I guess, newer improvements that special operations medics are carrying is blood. That was always we never left the gate without it. We'd have it in like a medic cooler because we didn't have the blood coolers. The other thing is we were always prepared for mass cows. And oftentimes, if we were doing more high-risk missions, if we were doing a clearance op or things like that, we brought the Sauce teams with us. Which I don't know if you guys—I'm I'm sure you guys are familiar with it—but maybe some of the listeners are, listeners are not. Which is the Special Operations Surgical Teams, and those are comprised of a trauma surgeon, an ER doc, an anesthetist, and like a couple, like an RN or or a like a medic, Air Force equivalent of a medic. Um, and those are those are other things we didn't leave the gate. Like if we we're doing a high risk mission, our golden hour was basically at point of injury because they could drop a Reboa in the back of their truck. It, they make 18 deltas almost obsolete. But that's another thing. When I talk about management of assets, you have to know how to employ them. If you're gonna take an asset with you and like fresh whole blood, i consider that a massive asset. But even whether it's a whether it's an item that you're carrying in an aid bag or, or an asset that you have at your, your disposal, you have to maximize it in order to mitigate risk. Because it's, it truly is about, it's about life saving. It's about, it's about preventing folded American flags being handed to wives and daughters and, and sons and stuff. So we, we had a great asset that we love to employ. We had a great relationship with them. So we always brought the sauce with us whenever we could. And that was something we really, other teams were not so into that idea, but we felt like it was, if we had them and they love to, they love to come with us, they were coming.
2: Well, I think your comment about the 18 Delta being obsolete was interesting because it actually, if you have a mass casualty event, and so for the listeners, a mass casualty event is very simply defined as injuries of patients that overwhelm the resources that you have. If you have that one trauma surgeon that's doing surgery and you have a second patient who also needs surgery, you need to have someone else there because the the team is only so large. And so the 18 Delta has to be ready to to fill the shoe if whether there's a sauce team there or not i think that's that's a great observation that you had
0: and it's sometimes it's about knowing your place too and within that kind of medical pecking order where if you have like a lot of times we can get egotistical where we we want to be the ones to to treat but if you have an asset like that you have to employ it they're the specialists. They're the ones who are truly going to make a difference. Not to say that 18 deltas are obsolete, but sometimes when you bring an asset like that, that allows you to be potentially a bit more, a bit more hands-on in a gunfight. You can maneuver your element a little bit better because you don't necessarily have to drop off to go treat patients. So that can keep you in the fight longer. That makes you a force multiplier. So that's how you have to think as an 18 delta. How can I, how can I force multiply? How can I continue to get closer to the X while I can in, in mitigate certain risks and basically increase the capabilities of your detachment because you're, you're, you are the SME, you're the subject matter expert when it comes to employing these things. So that's, that's one of the biggest takeaways that I, that I saw working with Zost was the ability for us to kind of have a little bit more freedom of maneuver when we would normally have to be kind of in the rear running a choke point or things like that.
1: Let's talk a little bit more about prolonged field care and, and the need for that and situations where you got long-range evacuations. You're you're talking miles and miles and miles, and you mentioned being in Africa. Tell us a little bit about those planning for long-range evacuations. I know that you were in Chad for some period of time. Were there any examples where you don't have support near you and you you have to figure out what to do?
0: So when you're going to places like Africa, it is so austere. And the risk for even... Something like a compound fracture, if you're in the wrong place, it can it can, it can can be deadly. So you're, you're planning, you really have to know what your worst case scenario is and then backwards plan off of that. In, in Africa specifically, it's some contracted air, it's some mill air, it's some international assets. So it's very complicated and kind of how that's going to work. But the bottom line is if you're out even an hour, two hours outside of an, a capital city that can prove to be an extremely, extremely bad problem. So the context of the injuries that you find yourself dealing with, if you find yourself dealing with one, God forbid, it, it elevates the situation becomes so much more dire because of the lack of resources. And, and, and plus, you then you factor in things like rainy season. If your asset's a fixed-wing asset and the landing strips are flooded out, there's, there's not a thing you can do. You're going you're gonna to sit on that patient until you can figure something else out. Me personally, luckily, I never had to treat anyone in Africa on it, like on our detachment. But there are guys who have had to sit on patients for four or five days and really have to, and American patients, they're, they're detachment members and really have to, like I talked to, talked about before, was leverage those telemedicine assets. And the preparation for that theater looks a lot different than it does for preparation for CENTCOM or for our preparation for Syria. It's a lot more prolonged field care focused. You have to really increase the capabilities of your detachment as a whole, because if you end up sitting on a patient, you're going to get tired. It's prolonged field care. It's called prolonged field care for a reason. You're going to get tired. So the medics aren't going to be the only one to be doing all the treatments. You're going to have to teach your 18 Bravos and your your, your Charlies and Echoes and team sergeants and everyone else to how to chart, how to take vitals, how to administer medication, how to do just simple nursing skills rotate the bed, rotate the patient, make sure you're not getting bed sores. So your your training plan changes complete. It's completely different than how you would train for a theater where you actually have a dust off asset.
1: So how do you get your commands to buy in to that kind of training and prioritizing medical training when there's so many other priorities? We want to blow stuff up. We want to do all kinds of crazy things, but you're saying, Hey, we need to train these guys to have some advanced medical skills because they may need it. How do you do that?
0: Medicine is one of those things that to me is a, and it should be to everyone else, is it's invaluable. It is the universal language. It is the mission enhancer. It is the risk mitigator. It is everything that a command should want when approving CONOP. right? It is like when you have a good med plan, you can go do more risky things. So what I mean by that is if you're a commander and you're not making that one of your main pillars, one of your fundamentals that you want your detachments or whatever your your unit is failing your team, you're, you're failing your, your soldiers, you're failing your Marines, you're failing your airmen. And the reason I say that is because nothing can build rapport like medicine.
2: Yeah, I think that medicine is the the one thing that we all care about, right? I mean, I want my health to be perfect. He wants his health to be perfect. And if I get hurt. That was the thing that scared me the most when I was in Southern Afghanistan was that if I got hurt as the only surgeon there, who was it that was going to take care of me? So I wanted to make sure there was a good medical plan to take care of me if I was the one to get hurt. So. You're
0: exactly right. You're exactly right. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, exactly, Doc. Exactly.
1: And we've talked to commanders who have been injured themselves, and they were very, very happy that they had prioritized the training of the unit. Because it can't be just all in one guy to be, hey, that's the medic. He knows everything. No one else has to know anything.
0: And medical capabilities is what separates the elite from, from the average. The, if everyone on there can speak that language, can save a life, my detachment, I had no problem. Like dudes could drop chest dudes, every single one of them. Every single one of them could drop a chest tube, could drop a crike. For, for me as a medic, from my perspective, makes me feel like I can do my job a little bit better and just be more comfortable. Because if I got hit, I know my 18 Charlie or my Bravo or whoever is going to come over and and be pretty close to the capabilities that I have. So that's comforting. That's great.
2: So once you've convinced your command that you're able to prioritize medical training, how do you make sure that it's fun and meaningful for those who you're
0: training? The delta set the tempo, right? So you have, to, you have to make it fun. You have to make it applicable to what guys want to do. Like Guys are going to want to shoot all the time. So how can you incorporate medicine on the range, for instance? Or I would do things like when I was in research, I would take my 18 Echo. I'd be like, hey, man, what are you doing after lunch today? I got I to gotta do a run. Come over, be my assistant for my run because that's realistic. right? I'm going to m- most likely work a patient with somebody on my detachment. So integrate them into, if you're, if you're a third grouper, have them over at the JSOM. if you're in research. Bring them over and have them work with you on your runs. My team sergeant was great at it. He wasn't a Delta. He was actually an Echo prior. His name's John McAndrew. He was one of my one of my mentors and somebody who I truly, truly value. I'd follow to hell and back. I've been to hell with him. I'd go back a bazillion times. He, as the detachment team sergeant, really set the tempo with that. He showed interest, which sparked the interest of other guys, right? So he was the dude who's like, stick me with an IV or put a tourniquet on my leg. And and things of that nature. And that's you have to get it in where you can. So if it's gotta be a priority, it's a pain in the ass to to train on. Like no one wants to carry casualties around. But if you're doing a CQB hit and you're not working casualties into that in training, that's an opportunity that you missed out on. Because chances are if you're getting up close and personal with the enemy, you're gonna have people get hurt. So train realistically and be disciplined about it.
2: So one of the big initiatives in military medicine right now is is something that you've you certainly know about, which is the civilian military partnerships where people, medics, surgeons, nurses, the whole gambit of the medical specialty has a unique military mission, right? Where we have to train specifically for military operations, but we partner with institutions that have large clinical volume and experience so that we can combine those two areas of training. Did you, during your training or afterwards ever, work in a civilian hospital to augment your training?
0: Yes, absolutely. I worked in Florida at a hospital down there. And that's that's truly where you kind of validate your skills that you learn through Socom. You finish up with a rotation and an ER, and then you do some fire rotations. And depending on where you go, you can end up with the sheriff's department, things of that nature. But that's where it kind of falls back on guys showing up to a detachment, being ready to do their jobs. There's not one 18 Delta, not one medic. Where versus a 68 Whiskey, right? A regular combat medic shows up just AIT. Just a- a- I-, I don't think they do any any rotations. Every single 18 Delta has already seen death. They've already seen gore. They already have seen what their job is supposed to be. And yeah, so those, those civilian partnerships go such a long way because it really prepares you for, for what you're supposed to do. They're invaluable.
1: So you also had a, an opportunity to do some other kind of cool, unique training. You did Special Forces Dive Medical Technician Course. You went to the Urban Combat School. Tell us a little bit about those opportunities and and why would a, a medic be a dive person and need to know about urban combat?
0: That, I think that kind of speaks to the diverse mission sets of of, of detachments. I was on a maritime ops team, so we oftentimes supported the dive teams who are doing high-risk dives. I'm sure you guys know that diving's comes with a certain level of risk depending on what gas you're diving, but and then all the way to the urban combat thing. So we're going from the ocean to kicking in a door. So you have to kind of just be well versed. And, and with DMT, it was great because you really focused on the dive physiology and with a huge focus on neuro exams. Which actually, when going back to that rollover, I used a lot of the things I learned at DMT in terms of neuro exams, and I used it in 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 a complete different setting without water. So it's. I learned a lot of good things. I learned a whole nother dance in terms of dive because I had never been, you know, exposed to that at all. So it was it was a fantastic course and it really like I said focused on the cranial nerves and neuro assessments and things of that nature. Uh is a direct action course. It's very it's focused on door kicking or CQB, close quarters battle, which really allows you to kind of shake out what like how you're going to treat during a point raid. Like if you have a casualty in a house you really get the the opportunity to kind of get team SOPs down on like, hey, what type of casualty collection points are you going to use? Are you going to use rolling casualty collection points or fixed? At what point during the raid are you going to switch from one versus the other? How are you going to triage patients with when you're up close and personal with an enemy fighter? So so those types of schools as an 18 Delta were super valuable because it allows you to kind of refine what needs to be done at certain
2: so, you've done all these great things, and, and it's, it's pretty awesome to hear about these different schools. But at some point, your military career did come to an end and you were medically retired. Can you tell us about that?
0: So, I was medically retired. I finaled out last October, transitioned out of the military due to some degenerative issues of my spine with some radiculopathy and things of that nature. And it was, it was hard. The transition out of the military is not easy. It's It's one of those things where that's all I knew really I, I've only ever been on a team I'd only ever been whether it was on the civilian side growing up playing sports then joining the military right out of high school basically that void needed to be filled and when you when you kind of get out and you're out on your own and you you kind of leave the community it's not easy especially to walk away at what I felt like was the peak of my career where I was shoot moving communicating and medicating very. At a high level, at least I felt like I was, and so to have to hang that up was tough. And that transition, what was not was not easy, and it will not be easy. And that's why I'm doing this podcast. I'm getting out of my comfort zone to try and to try and tell people that it's okay. That if you're injured, you can. There are avenues. There are things you can do to help yourself to to increase your quality of life. If you have to, you have to call it quits. There's no shame in it. When coming from the, the soft community and talking to my buddies who are doing it now and who are injured they're like hey man are you are you worried about ridicule and people calling you a coward and and for sure i was and now looking back in retrospect the only approval i ever needed was the approval of the guys that i went to war with so if there are dudes out there listening to this podcast and you're hurt and you you need to throw in the towel like there's no shame in it it's okay but your fight's got to come to an end at some point and, and, and you got to do what you got to do the grass is greener on the civilian side. You just have to water it. You got to put in the work. You have to find your new mission. You have to find your new purpose. It's definitely not easy. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm out now, and I I'm doing well. I work for a company called Global Rescue, and I'm just trying to do the best I can and still advocate. I guess my new mission, my new fight, is to advocate for this community and to try and find good people to to fill my shoes to to go go work beside my best friends and and.
1: So so tell us, tell us a little bit about this organization Global Rescue. What what is it and what do you guys do?
0: Yeah, so we are a travel crisis risk management business, very ho- heavy focus on medicine. We we deal in we're we're a we're a global institution that deals with travelers all throughout the world having different crises from all the way from medical to security incidents. It's a lot of telemedicine. A lot of patient advocacy, we can deploy paramedics to bedsides to go and care for people who are in hospitals and and, bring, and we can do medical escorts. We do ambul- air ambulance coordination. We also do executive protection coordination and liaising and things of that nature. It's really been a blessing coming and working for the company overall because they're super military friendly and it's a great culture to work for, to, to kind of step into. For me, it was it was lifesaver coming out of the military and coming here. Um, so I, I couldn't be more grateful for it.
2: So you've had this... This wonderful experience in the military, what advice would you give to a young person who was considering a career in medicine? And what if they thought, hey, I'd like to do special forces one day?
0: I would say to them that it's a journey. It's a journey that comes at a cost. You go to war, whether it's in soft or not, just for, you could be an infantry guy, it doesn't matter. It comes at a cost. You will not be the same person that you entered, that entered the military or that entered special operations you will be different on the back end and and it it's going to be for for better and for worse there're going to be things and sh- things that you struggle and deal with and that will change you as a person but it's okay and and I wouldn't change a damn thing that I did or didn't do I made lifelong friends I worked with and I worked and walked amongst giants guys who are still out there doing the damn thing And they're doing it well. They're doing it at an elite level. And if you want to go do extraordinary things, SF is going to definitely get you there for sure. But don't go in half-hearted. Don't give yourself plan Bs. I was actually talking to a guy the other day. He's like, I would, I want to be a Green Beret. I'm willing to do whatever it takes. I'd die for it. I said, good. Because the people you're going to be working for would die for it too. And that's that's the bottom line. The second you sign on that dotted line and you start your journey to becoming SF you're going gonna to start working right away. Everything you do is going to be a gate. It's going to be a challenge. And if you start looking at it like that, where, hey, I, whether it's a, a physical, I, I got to get an SF physical, look at it as your first gate. That's your first step to becoming a Green Beret. You're one step closer. Oh, now I got to buy my plane ticket to get to selection. Buy that plane ticket. Boom, that's one gate down. You're one step closer to becoming a Green Beret. If you look at it like that with little victories, you will be successful because it's a marathon. It's the hardest, most rewarding thing I've ever done in my life. When I'm on my deathbed at 99 years old, I will look back and it'll probably still be one of my greatest life accomplishments.
2: I think that's great advice. No matter what you want to do in life, small victories take you, keep going, just keep pushing forward. Tell us your most interesting case while you were deployed, unless you've already told it.
0: Most interesting case, probably the rollover. That one definitely goes down in infamy for sure for me. We've ha- we had quite a few, a lot of a lot of mass cals in the FST, a lot of surgical experience in the FST. Not-
2: Did you scrub with some of the surgeons when? They oh were yeah, yeah. We sc-
0: we scrubbed multiple times a week, multiple times a week. We were in there, and we had a great relationship with the FST, and they got us into pretty much every major case, I and mean, they wanted us in on every major case because that's we helped them so. They they appreciated that.
2: I'll tell you one of the experiences I remember from Afghanistan was the special forces team that was there would always come roll into the, I was with 10th Mountain, but they would come to the FOB. And it was just, it was actually a, a great joy because these were people I remember that truly loved what they were doing. And they were about the most jacked people I ever thought. I was like, these look like NFL football players rolling into to, to fight a war. I mean, this was, I thought it was the most awesome thing.
0: It, it's an interesting, uh, you have the, you have the nerds. I was told I was a dumb, dumb 18 Delta. I, cause I was selected as a Bravo. So my Fox would always tell me I was a dumb, dumb, but it's a very interesting culture. And I'm not so jacked, but there's some jacked medical nerds out there, man, that will, that, that are seriously good at medicine.
1: So looking back, tell us what it means to you to be a green beret.
0: Like I said, it's a journey to become a Green Beret, period, point blank. Like every single day that you show up to work, you are expected to perform. There's no days off. There's no screwing around. You are expected to be operating at your best capacity and like to be surrounded by people who you can look at and know that they're there for all the same reasons as you are is the most refreshing thing that you could ever want if you're a motivated individual. Like, to be able to have walked the halls of 3rd Special Forces Group and to know the lineage and the, the people that had given their lives before me, it's truly, truly an amazing... It, it was an amazing place to work. You have Medal of Honor recipients, Purple Heart recipients, I mean, Distinguished Service Cross, Silver Stars, Bronze Stars. I mean, and it, that's the norm. That's the baseline for what you're doing the bar set so high that your vision of success becomes skewed and that's why guys have such a hard time with transition out is because it's the metric of, of what success is within that lifestyle is so so high it's such a great great place to work that when you leave it it's like whoa what, what do i do now But looking back, that was it was an honor and a privilege to even have had that opportunity to compete with those guys, to work with those guys. And the ones that came before us, before me, are the ones who inspired me, the Mike Duskins of the world, the guys who didn't make it home. That's why we train hard. That's why GBs train hard. It's because of that. They know that there's no respawning in that game, right? It's as high risk as it gets. There's no takebacks. There's no quick bandage where you're gonna quickly patch someone up and get them back in the fight necessarily. And it's it's a serious, dangerous business. It's the NFL of warfare. Like that's where you go. If you wanna be an elite warrior, you go become a Green Beret. And that's it.
1: So you mentioned that when you look back, you're 99, look back in your career, you say this was the best time in my career. What would you say? other people would say about your career. What would you want your legacy to be? How did you comport yourself as a Special Forces 18 Delta during the time that you were in the military?
0: I feel like my legacy is not something that I should want to be written. I want my legacy and my, my actions to speak for themselves. I want to try and add as much value as I can to the community even though i'm terrible at podcasts or whatever i'm i'm out here trying to advocate and i'm trying to, to educate and that's what i want i just want my actions to speak for themselves and i want to add as much value to the world as i can whether it's here or or to my neighbor or on an in on another continent it does not matter that's that's what i'm here to do i'm here to spread positivity and i'm here to 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 talk about my struggles and 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 i just want to be an open and honest dude that's it
1: We've been speaking with retired Army Staff Sergeant Adam Bardwell on Docs Podcast. Adam, thanks again for sharing your experiences and insights with us. And, and thank you for your service to the nation. Best of luck with whatever comes next in, in your career and your experience.
0: I appreciate you guys. Like, seriously, thank you for having me out here and, and on the podcast. Thank you for listening to War Docs. We sure hope you enjoyed it. War Docs is a nonprofit organization
1: supported by donations from listeners like you. Please follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcasts and rate and review this episode and share the show with your contacts on social media. Find out more information about our show, our guests, and how to become a member of Team WarDocs on WarDocsPodcast.com. Thank you for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, WarDocs has you covered. Spread the word.